0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Friend Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Larimer, and I'm joined today by Mr. Maurice Root. Maurice, how are you doing?
1: How's it, Nick? Welcome back from the US. Glad to see you made it back in one piece.
0: Yeah, despite the best efforts of Delta Airlines. Um, <laughs> uh, also joined today by Mr. Michael Morris. Michael, how are you? I'm very
2: well, thank you, Nick. And um, I, I was going to echo uh, Maurice's comment, we'd glad to see you, but it's a pity we can't see you. I believe you're having... <laughs> Load shedding, yes, and uh, not not issues. load
0: shedding, internet, yeah, internet problems, uh, today right, and right. Wattley, Which are, uh, I'm I've had it up to here with internet service providers, but anyway, um, also just but a quick to, programming to, note, yeah, I'm no, glad to you. be
2: with you. I certainly endorse tomorrow's <laughs> thing, yeah.
0: glad, glad to be to be to be <laughs> yeah. here in in voice, if not in if not in face. Could um, be. just a mm-hmm. quick programming note, uh, there will not be a show on Wednesday at 1.30. Instead, there will be our shorter version of The Daily Friend Show, The Daily Friend Wrap. There will be an episode of that, which will come out at about 5 o'clock. And that show is not recorded live, um, but it will be sort of premiered live. So uh, have a, have a look out for that. Um, and that'll be the norm kind of going forward, at least for now. <laughs> uh, we're going to be shaking up our programming a little bit on The Daily Friend Show, uh, trying out some new things. So with uh, Art, any further Interruption, let's start off with our story today, and this is from one of South Africa's most, um, I think, charismatic and forthright uh, CEOs, and that is Neil Froneman of Sabanya Stillwater, who says that Sabanya Stillwater is going to be taking down criminal kingpins, and ideally he would like to have governments help, but um, as far as he's concerned, they're going to go ahead without state help if they have to uh he gave an interview um and uh he, he announced an initiative between Sabonia Stillwater and uh Remgro Remgro um who say that they are ge- they are currently launching a joint uh business government initiative against crime and corruption and that if government doesn't play ball they'll set their own priorities uh, if there are any attempts to stonewall them He said, quote, we are very aware that certain elements may try to stonewall us, but we're designing our crime and corruption initiatives so that we can achieve 80% of our aims alone. He says that the initiative of this is to disrupt criminal supply chains, and that uh, businesses, the larger companies, have actually got pretty good crime intelligence. They know who the kingpins are behind major um, uh, crime syndicates. He says, until now, the private sector has been sending crime intelligence reports to police, and nothing has happened. We know who they are, and we will disrupt them. We will chop them off at their knees. Uh, it's now got to such a crisis where the state has become so weak that business in every respect, just not just crime, not just with regards to crime and corruption, has no choice. We've reached a tipping point. Whether it's the area of energy, transport, and logistics, or crime and corruption, we are stepping up, and we are going to make a difference with or without government. He said that civil society needs to step up, run municipalities, fix infrastructure, because it's hopeless to wait for government to do it. Uh, <clears throat> He also said that um, uh, that, gov- that government had been offered, particularly with regards to the National Prosecuting Authority, um, extra capacity by various large companies who said that they would help pay for basically anything uh, that would help tackle corruption, anything from lawyers to, to, to various costs, and that this had all been rejected. Um, he was asked in this interview whether uh, this would help government if, Business suddenly started taking up the slack and covering for government. He said, I fully understand they will use this politically to suit themselves, but I think civil society will see right through it. From the polls I've seen, what we're doing is not going to be interpreted as the government suddenly suddenly having done something. The government is seen as weak and voters will vote in a much more objective way. I don't think we're going to do anything that's going to distort voters' feelings about the government. They are deeply depressed like all of us and will vote correctly. I don't think we want to watch it all go down the drain, which is what will happen if we do nothing. Michael, what do you make of Freudeman's <clears throat> comments?
2: Yeah, I mean, fighting talk indeed. Um he's um he's certainly lived up to his reputation as being somebody who uh, tells it uh, tells it like it is. Um I think that's that's very healthy. Um I, I liked some of the sentiments right down at the bottom of the story. He referring to uh to Yanni Durant, the CEO Remgro, with whom he's working. Uh, on this on this project, the, the the kind of crime crime initiative partnership with the government, that Durant and I are both very competitive. We don't want to waste our time, and we're not going to waste our time. So that kind of does seem to signal a very purposeful business like approach to to this problem. But I especially liked his the very final um, sentiment here is that you know we, we, we're referring to ministers and officials, um, they are not our friends he says, they are our working partners, and they must do their job, and we'll do our job, and if they don't, they'll be called to task. So, it's it sets up a very um, very clear sort of paradigm of how they intend to to approach this, um, and what it also does, I think, is sets up in the public mind how the, the terms on which we are to judge the businesses in willingness to work with the government. I think that that's quite an important thing. It's potentially a risk um, for for both of them. Uh, Yeah, I think for business generally, uh, they they will be seen to represent the private sector um, and corporate South Africa. um, And they're saying, you know, we are going to act, we're going to take out the criminals at the knees and all the rest of it. Um, But if they don't, um, it's likely that, they will come under really significant pressure, really great scrutiny or greater scrutiny. I think he's certainly right to say that um, uh, you know if we go to survive as a country, we cannot uh, rely on some kind of reform mindedness to suddenly form in the in the in the ANC's mind, um, let alone in its actions. Um, so I think it you know it's 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 a kind of honest. Um, very frank uh, appraisal of where we stand and let's hope that it is actually an indication of, of where we go from here whether you know that it is in fact going to deliver the results that he seems to suggest uh he's determined to uh, to achieve yeah
0: yeah I, I really wish that more of this would sound like this and uh, this is not a new thing um uh, uh what are they called um uh Neil Fraunemann has been kind of at the forefront of criticizing government and being fairly blunt for quite a while now. Um, So this is no surprise coming from him. Mm. But uh, I I, I really like his call for civil society to be more active Mm. um, and to to engage more in this. And I also, I kind of like the fact that he sort of says that you know he thinks that there will be political change. And I think there's a version of... Um, wanting the government or, or civil society to step up and fill the role of government, which kind of is a bit naive in that it thinks, it, it kind of almost views the state as becoming completely irrelevant um, and therefore the private sector will be able to run everything and then the country will be some kind yeah. of sort of libertarian paradise. But the state's not going to go anywhere. Um, no. mm. it's even, even in a country as dysfunctional as DRC, the state is still able to extract resources from, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. from people who are actually producing things, making, mm. making stuff. So it's so kind of without improving the state in some way, um, it's always going to remain this kind of lodestone around the country's neck, uh, uh, yeah. even, even if you can kind of stabilize the ship by civil society becoming more active
2: yeah and there tends to be this this i i like that word naive sorry i'm butting in here briefly but the, the, this notion that is very popular um among people who you know who'll who'll say well politicians are a waste of time and we can get by without them well actually we can't for exactly the reasons that you say that you know, the state is, is managed by elected officials. That's just how it is and it's how it should be. Um, and people should be focusing on making political choices. And as you say, it's very it's really good that Froneman addresses it directly. He anticipates people thinking differently about how they vote and that, you know, the, that election, that electoral process is central to how the state functions. I think uh, Frunemann may have somewhat
0: tipped his uh, political leanings when you suggested that the people will, quote, vote correctly.
2: I saw that.
0: Maurice, what do you make of all this?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, uh, it doesn't surprise me that Neil Frenemann is saying this kind of stuff. He's been, uh, you know, it seems to be kind of the consensus now that the government is uh, doing very badly. But, uh, and with many people coming out and saying these kinds of things, but Neil Freniman's being he was uh, Almost a lone voice, especially uh, amongst business leaders in South Africa. You know, we've seen some people like Magda Virchirska, Ver- who I mean, she was one of the biggest supporters of Sororanaposa in 2018 2019. She's now said, uh, I mean, I think she's even saying some things that are, uh, you know, a bit, uh, bit uh, uh, that aren't completely correct about the state of the country. So I think a lot of people, you know, near, I mean, So, Neil Ferdinand, I don't think he's saying anything that many people are disagreeing with, but I think uh, he's been saying, he's been one of the few people who has called it as it is. He's been, I think he's been quite a brave figure in calling uh, out what's been uh, happening in South Africa. And uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, I I think we actually need more of this, but I think we're seeing a lot of this now. And this, uh, it does seem that, uh, you know, from the business leaders who were pretty quiet before, I on to say things we've seen, uh, for example, business leadership in uh, South Africa. Uh, Bruce Vousseau, she came out recently. I mean, she's been criticizing ESCOM. She criticized the NHR and a lot of other organizational, you know, um, business leaders and so on are coming out and actually, you know, putting in the ANC on notice. And uh, oh, and a lot of other people who have influence in these kind of circles, Peter Bruce and so on. So I think uh, Neil Ferronimani is a bit of a, a Cassandra, I think, because he was – uh, telling us what was going to happen. I think almost uh, like the interest of race relations itself, you know, but Cassandra has been warning people what's going to happen. Nobody wanted to listen. <laughs> and then uh, yeah. uh, all the things that we've uh, predicted would happen are coming to pass. So, yeah, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's quite interesting how Neil new friend of mine has said that, uh, going to sort of bypass the state. And as you say, Nick, that's not really feasible. And uh, I'm open to correction, but I do think Neil Furnman even said a few years ago, <laughs> where, uh, in the mines where Sibania, I mean, in the towns and so on where Sibania still water operates, a lot of the functions of the state are actually taken over then by the mine, you know, providing electricity and water and so on. And then when these things fail, then people go and uh, protest outside the mine instead of outside the city hall or whatever the case is. So in people's minds, you know, that becomes the... Manu is now responsible for these kinds of services. Uh, And the state kind of washes hands of it. But as you say, like in the DRC, it's still extracting rents and resources and taxes from the producers without actually uh, providing anything. And I think the DRC is a very good example. It's been, uh, you know, since for for many years, the DRC has been like that, you know, from also when Mobutu was still in charge from the 1970s and so on. And I think, uh, you know, South Africa must be careful of not becoming a kind of a DRC state. you know, I'd like to maybe, instead of developmental states, talk about the parasite states or the vampire states, which extracts uh, resources and uh, goods and so on without giving anything back in return.
0: Speaking of vampire states, let's move on to our next topic for today. And this is, there is a lot of praise at the moment for the new president of Nigeria. Um, president Tinbu recently won election in a, I think it was a three-way contest that was pretty hotly contested in Nigeria. Um, There were, as there always is in Nigeria, claims of vote rigging and and manipulation of the the polls and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know how, to what extent that is true. Um, But regardless, uh, uh, he did uh, come to power um, uh, without too much sort of violence or chaos breaking out in the country. And he is receiving praise for... um, the speed at which he is engaging in various reforms to improve the economy of Nigeria, and uh, Michael Avery writing, and I think it was Business Day, um, <laughs> says that he <laughs> shows up what uh, uh, what how much Sir it dithers. Nigeria is, I would say, inarguably a harder place to govern than South Africa. As difficult as South Africa is to govern, Nigeria <laughs> is much more complicated uh, and much harder. Um, and yet, uh, uh, President Tunbu appears to have been making some reforms that the business sector uh, uh, across the world thinks is positive. Um, Maurice, what do you take from this?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, very interesting. And uh, Nigeria, I think, is kind of the sleeping giant of Africa. Uh, it's already, depending on how you measure it, I think uh, it's got a bigger economy than ours. I think it's we, we're the third biggest economy in Africa now after Egypt and Nigeria. They've also got, uh, you know, very big population. I think it's about 250 million people. And uh, Nigerians also, I mean, you obviously don't want to stir it up they're quite hardworking uh, people and so on. Uh, I know in the United States, uh, Nigerian Americans are often at the top of uh, the rankings of how much uh, people earn and so on. So, you know, Nigeria, I think, as I said, it's really the sleeping giant of Africa. And if they can get uh, things right over there, they could really take off and you know, be the real uh, superpower in in Africa. But as I said, I think it's a very difficult place to govern. I mean, it's got far more languages than South Africa has. It's so obviously, it's also got the cleavages of um, Muslims and Christians. It's also got some secessionist groups. I mean, it had a civil war in the late 1960s when the Biafrans tried to secede. And mm-hmm. I think there is still that kind of sentiment uh, in Biafra and other parts of Nigeria too. And uh, yeah, I think it just shows us that Africa is getting left behind more and more. <laughs> um, there was another article of the Weekend by Tyler Cowan, he's an American economist. And he was just saying, Uh, You know, the country in Africa where you want to invest at the moment is Kenya. So he he brought up uh, Nigeria and South Africa and Ethiopia. Uh, But uh, as you said, they've all got different problems, but all do have quite serious problems. So I think South Africa is definitely getting left behind. You know, uh, we have Nigeria, we have Kenya. There's a lot of other countries that are already starting to get things right. Even Angola seems to be, you know, sort of getting onto the right path. It's starting to crack down on corruption. It's... uh, Doing things like letting the uh, the currency uh, be free floating and so on and not uh, be managed. So, so, and I think South Africa's we we we're just gonna, you know, we, we're gonna make mistakes that other African countries have made in the past thirty or forty years, but just repeat those mistakes before we actually start reforming properly and you know, uh, getting the and, uh, uh, and getting this potential that we actually have in South Africa actually finally harnessing it. And we, like as we all know. South Africa's got this great potential, but I'm uh, just pity about the government.
0: <clears throat> yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, Nigeria, it always, always amazes me that it, it has this enormous population of, of about, I think it's 220 million now, mm-hmm. uh, estimated. Um, something like a fifth of Africa lives in Nigeria. And mm-hmm. it has, for so many years, been kind of in many ways the poster child of. What, what we might call that vampire state, with this incredibly dysfunctional government, but that one that survives and continues to be sort of influential by living off of oil revenue, which Nigeria has for, for many years. But, um, you know, as you say, if, they, if there's positive political reform there, Nigeria's potential to sort of take off and really leave South Africa in the dust is, I think, quite um, quite startling. And you, mm. and you know, as 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 many countries around the world, such as uh, China or, or India or even Indonesia to some degree, have proven, you don't actually have to have a fully, you don't have to have the full raft of mm. sort of functioning free society tech, check boxes in order to actually start making significant economic and prosperity progress. Um, uh, Michael, what do you make of this?
2: Mm. I think I think the, your last point is a very good one. You've got to get some essentials going and I think it creates momentum, it creates uh, the kind of direction of, of, of movement that you want um, and you build on that. And, I, and And as we've said I think often on the show, none of this is rocket science. Um, Michael Avery in his column sums up the, the sort of Nigerian approach crisply when he says that uh, Tanubu set about implementing a program of reform that essentially centered on diagnosing what needed to change That's a very basic thing. Here in this country, we have excellent think tanks like the IRR, but other people looking at this constantly, experts in education, in the economy, in mining, in services, and so on. So the information is there, the data is there, the advice is there, the options are there. You focus on what needs to change you work with the private sector and communicate it broadly with the public sector in the cabinet and So you get this uh, you know kind of se- sense of people all working in the same direction you build an army of allies is quite a nice phrase for every uses in implementing the reforms and by linking performance to improved pay and not the other way around this is a big problem that we often face and then zero tolerance for corruption but these are not um you know, difficult things to do. They're simply things that require clear thinking, uh a, a, an ability to, to to get people to sign on, to coalesce around these these very basic ideas, and then you you have action. Get people to actually act on what it is that you're expecting them to act on. Um, and I think once you start getting that going, uh even in those small areas, as you say, you don't need to fix the whole the whole range of, uh, or, or, or be guaranteed the whole range of sort of f- f- a free market, constitutional, democratic dispensation, going simultaneously. You start with whatever you can start with immediately, and you build on that, and you link them all together. And I think in that way you can you can you know generate a, a movement for change, and that appears to be what uh, what Nigeria is succeeding in doing. And there's no reason why we can't do the same.
0: It is, it is also worth pointing out that Nigeria has famously had, um, uh, electricity problems, I think for decades, basically mm-hmm. its own kind of load shedding. And, uh, but, um, I was just looking this up now, um, outside of the capital, uh, Nigeria seems to have uh, on average kind of 17 to 18 hours of electricity a day, which, you know, when we're in stage six is actually better than us. <laughs> they, they seem to be making some progress. Um, any final thoughts, Morris, before we move on?
1: Um, yeah, um, I see there's some comments about uh, Namibia in the, uh, in the YouTube comments here. Uh, I'm not too sure if I'm as bullish on uh, Namibia. Uh, I was speaking to a Namibian economist a little while ago, and while their uh, economy is growing much faster than South Africa, so they're growing about 3% a year compared to basically zero percent. They also have uh, quite a few problems there. Why, uh, whereas a designated employer South Africa is somebody with more than 50 employees, and maybe apparently it's more than 10. So if you employ more than 10 people, you've got to follow various BE laws. They also have ramblings about uh, EWC, and all this kind of thing. There's also a bit of um, some, some quite radical elements there who want to, you know, kind of nationalize all land, and so on. And also the fact that uh, this economist I was speak, speaking to are saying the fact that they uh, the Namibian dollar is pegged on a one-to-one basis to the rand. is actually a bit of a problem. He, uh, In his opinion, he thought the Namibian dollar needs to be a little bit weaker, yeah. and that's actually a bit of a break on the Namibian economy. And just, I mean, finally, just uh, from a uh, absolute point of view, they've only got about 2 million people. They've got as many people as Joburg has. I mean, I'm so, sorry, not even, I mean, but half as many people as Joburg has. So just from that kind of point of view, I think there's a sort of a cap on uh, the potential Namibia has. And of course, I mean, it's uh, we've seen that it does have, uh, it's got lots of the same kinds of um, uh, advantages South Africa has, I think, a fairly uh, educated population, decent infrastructure, and it's got. Uh, I think uh, there, there's. I'm not sure if it has been discovered, or I think there might be quite a lot of oil off the Namibian coast and gas and so on. So it's definitely a place I think to look out for. But uh, I'm not sure if it's you know going to. It's got quite the potential of somewhere such as uh, Kenya or Nigeria. But it's definitely some place to watch. And I think probably a lot of South Africans are consider uh, Namibia as a bit of a bolt hole if things. Uh, if, uh, if things do start going pay in South Africa, if we do get President Julius Malema next
0: year. Yeah, I I do think that uh, human capital is sometimes undervalued or at least just sheer population size is sometimes undervalued by some <coughs> economic analysis as to how much it can really increase the dynamism of your society. And I think it really is difficult to, even when you've got things going well um, as, as a country like, you know, Botswana does have things that we don't like in its economic policy and I know it's, it's quite restrictive on foreigners, for example, and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but it's been generally run reasonably well for a long time, and yet it's still just not like an economic powerhouse. And I think that's just yeah. basically because it's got too few people. Uh, and I think yeah, and China also has the always
1: going to that problem too. But Botswana has got big problems when the diamonds run up. They've been trying to diversify, but uh, they haven't really managed to. And also there does seem that the government is becoming a bit more uh, strict on civil and uh, other political liberties and so on. So right. Botswana is also a place to, I think, be a little bit concerned about. Obviously, it's working pretty well. But, um, yeah, I think uh, the future could be a bit uh, bit rough.
0: Right. And I think it's no surprise, then, that the, the sort of major emerging huge economies of the of the 21st century, um, particularly in Asia, India, China, uh, uh, Indonesia, uh, all have very big populations. Mm. Um, I think it definitely does add to that. And also,
1: I mean, uh, the also the issue of growing population, I mean, this is why India's, this is why 21st century will be the Indian century, not the Chinese century, because China's population is shrinking. They're only getting about mm. 700 million people by the middle of the century, whereas India's population is growing, and it's much younger. Far more people in India are under the age of thirty than in China. So that's mm. also the mm. a, a big, uh, big benefit for India compared to China.
0: Yeah, even though they have a long way to go still in, in catching up to China, I think they're making... Mm incredible progress um all right well let's 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 move on to um i think this is maybe our last story or second last story and uh, the electricity minister Ramachopa, he's um i think he's been pretty active in the media uh he's certainly given us a lot of things to talk about um including uh, infamously his corruption's not really the problem uh, <laughs> uh, a quote which is Sort of true, but also sort of not true at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, he has been talking a little bit about um, drawing up a new plan to have more private sector input and in building generation uh, capacity for the grid. Um, this does actually run contrary to, I think, what uh, Minister Guadamantasha has suggested at various times, which is that we can just fix the coal-powered fleet and then that'll be fine. Um, uh Ramakorpa seems to be taking a different approach, which is that we really do actually need new power plants, which I think is not particularly controversial uh, amongst people who pay attention to this stuff. Uh, he says uh, that he would like to involve the private sector, and um, he's working on a model which would see the private sector finance, build, and operate electricity products um, for a short amount of time before transferring it back to government control, presumably back to ESCOM. Uh, He also says that the issue of tariffs is going to be important because you do not want energy to be unaffordable or to be exclusive domain of the affluent and the rich, undermining our ability for universal access of connecting the poor into the grid. So you can see the complexity of this equation. There are multiple variables that require attention. (laughs) So there's definitely something in this that sounds reasonable, right? Getting the private sector to build and operate power stations sounds like a good idea. here's the the devil in the detail here, which is, he says, short period before transferring it back to government. I don't really know why it necessarily needs to go back to government. I mean, apart from the fact that he's uh, ideologically captured by the state centric <laughs> worldview. Um, but this is going to be the real sticking point. What company in their right mind would say, yeah, no, sure, we'll build your new power plant, your new nuclear power plant, your new wind farm. Uh, we'll put all of our money and in risk into building it. We'll We'll run it for two years and then hand it back to government. Mm. I think he needs to be very careful with this whole short period. Uh, otherwise, no one in the private sector is going to come to the table, I don't think. Uh, Michael,
2: what do you make of this? Mm, I think that's exactly right. We saw a similar thing, I think, with the um, attempts to to get the private sector interested in, in the rail. It's a very good idea in in, in principle. Um, but the early ones, and I'm not sure, I think there was there was some some sort of late development of that score, but some of the early attempts to encourage uh, investment in two of the big routes, I think, to, to Durban, to KZN, and another one in the Eastern Cape, um, they'd set such a short time scale for the for, for such a pr- project. But it, it simply it simply wasn't wasn't viable for financially or commercially um and and they were, and they weren't, there weren't there any takers for at least one of them. I, I can't quite remember now if that was actually altered and they had some further success. But clearly, you know there has to be a good dose of rea- of realism with any of these c- kinds of things thinking in terms of of partnering with the private sector, which I think is a good thing. Um, uh, there's a lot that can be done both in with electricity with schooling with healthcare care right across the, the economy i think but it must be based on a kind of thoroughly practical realistic um schema that you know people understand you know the how long it's how much needs to be invested and 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 what it's going to take to attract that investment, which is uh, you know a workable plan essentially but a short period as you say. <laughs> That doesn't sound that doesn't sound really appealing at all, or wouldn't sound appealing to investors.
0: And uh, Morris, I think this is really where we see mm. how ideology is is the central problem in in, in policy reform mm. in South Africa. Here, you know, we see the more, I guess, the slightly more pragmatic arm of government saying, "Okay, fine, 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 fine. Everything is going wrong. You've twisted our arm enough. We'll let the private sector do something." But only under the condition that we ultimately reap all of the benefits, get to take full control of it in the end, and uh, they have to put up all the risk. It's, as as long as you just keep thinking that the government ultimately has to be the final solution for all of these problems, there's not going to be any any real progress, I think, in fixing South Africa's issues.
1: Yeah, I think that's it, exactly. I mean, just, I mean, as Andre De Reiter said in his book, the ANC um, you know, senior people the ANC are still going around calling each other comrades, and they're still stuck in this old, uh, you know, worldview. I think mean, this is even why we have this uh, ANC supporter of Russia. Leaving aside all the other um, issues, I think to a large degree they still kind of think of Russia as the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union used to support the ANC in the struggle against apartheid. Therefore, they still they must still support Russia slash the Soviet Union, and this is why we get this kind of stuff. As I said, the worldview it's, it's 60, 70 years out of date, and there's a battle now between ideology and reality. And thankfully, in a way, I think reality is starting to win. Uh, oh. It doesn't always win. Uh, ideology beat reality in Zimbabwe and Venezuela, for example, and we've seen the consequences there. And while I think there's a big struggle in South Africa between ideology and reality, reality has sometimes has the upper hand, I think. And we're seeing in these you know, kind of thin end of the wedge, you know, like kind of allowing privatization and, you know, just starting to get this the kind of pulling the first little uh, – Thread on a jersey to start uh you know for the whole jersey starts sort of coming apart and i think that's what yeah. we're seeing it. so yeah I, I think it's i mean this is uh, i think it's uh, actually pretty positive and i think uh you know maybe the more ridiculous things where i mean the government would expect the mm-hmm. you know power plants be given over the day after it's been finished uh getting built or whatever the case is but mm-hmm. i know uh I, I think maybe it's a good way of solving our electricity problems but i think we've got a long way to go and You know, it seems like Romacopo is actually trying to do the right stuff a lot of of the time, and maybe he wasn't the worst guy for, for this position. But I mean, as uh, uh, one of our writers in uh, the Daily Friend, Jonathan Allenbergen said, uh, when the Soviet Union ran out of uh, vegetables, they they appointed a minister of vegetables. And it's kind of the same thing in South Africa. Appoint a minister of electricity when you start to run out of electricity. So let's hope we never get a minister of uh, oxygen or something like that in South Africa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do just yeah. want to make a final point here, which is that we sometimes yeah. use ideology as shorthand. But really, what I mean when I say ideology um, is this sort of outdated 1970s Marxist claptrap, uh, which kind of infests government. I'm, I consider myself a fairly ideological person uh, in favor of free markets and liberal political institutions. Um, and <laughs> I, think, I think really the problem here is very specifically the, the ideological approach that government has taken, uh, which is to always favor the state, to always centralize power, to always um, assume that problems are caused by saboteurs and not by its own failings. But anyway, we're out of time for today. So we hope that you found the show interesting. Just a reminder, there won't be the normal show on Wednesday. There will be the Daily Friend Rap Show uh, in the evening, which will come out at around 5. So have a look out for that on the podcast apps and on YouTube. And with that, uh, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Cheers, everyone. Have a good one.